0: Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim?
1: Remember that iconic scene in Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, where Captain Kirk yells out, Khan! Uh, yeah. Well, the father of the nuclear bomb in Pakistan, his name is A.Q. Khan. Coincidence? Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and sometimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear topics interact. We usually watch a movie, but today we changed things up, flipped on Netflix, and proceeded to needlessly overanalyze a TV show. My name is Tim Westmeyer. I am a nuclear enthusiast whose work on nuclear issues for over a decade has left him with one crippling weakness, an inability to avoid complaining about Hollywood's portrayal of nuclear weapons. Thank goodness my co-host is here to keep me positive. Hi, this is Joel, and I've been a friend of Tim's for nearly a decade, so
0: it makes me completely qualified to be on this podcast, even though I know nothing about nuclear issues. But I do like a good movie and a good conversation.
1: It's usually just Joel and I, but today we felt like we needed some backup because we are a little bit out of our elements because we watched two episodes of the original series run of Star Trek. There's no
0: one better to comment on the significance of some of these episodes and one of my good friends from school from back in the day, Gabe, who, if Tim, if you're a nuclear enthusiast, I would say he is definitely a Star Trek enthusiast, or as we can say, our Trekkie in residence today. So Gabe, welcome to the show, and we look forward to a good conversation, and as long as you can keep it super critical.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. I'm going to do my best to be super critical, as super critical as Tim is, uh, but at least on the Star Trek stuff today.
1: So we all got obsessed with uh, movies, in the case of Joel, and nuclear stuff, in the case of me. How did you get into Star Trek? What's your What's your Star Trek origin story?
2: Uh, so yeah, I've been uh, watching Star Trek for quite some time now. I think I first got into uh, some episodes of Next Generation through a friend of mine, and was originally really drawn into kind of this, I was a real science nerd, so the science science fiction uh space kind of aspect of it uh, but then as i got older I realized that i kind of enjoyed the um you know some of the bigger questions that the that the whole franchise asks about you know the human condition and ethical dilemmas and uh, morality and the hope for a better future so that's kind of why i love it
0: can i just say as a as a funny aside especially between me and gabe i do remember when gabe first got married and As I was getting ready to attend the wedding, I was trying to come up with a gift for Gabe. And, of course, because I don't follow protocol, I completely ignored their registry. And I was like, i got to come up with a cool gift because you don't actually give the gifts that they want. You try to come up with something even better. Yeah,
2: the gifts that you want.
0: Right. And, you know, I'm technologically inclined. I like to feel. You know, I'm hip. I'm with it. And so what did I do? Well, I got them a year subscription to netflix because i thought hey you know they're gonna want to do a lot of uh binge watching and stuff like that so i got it for him and come to find out after the the wedding and stuff they were back from the honeymoon i was like oh how are you doing and one of the first things i remember is gabe saying oh great we've definitely been watching netflix we realized that they added all of the star trek shows to netflix we're starting from episode one and watching every single episode right now it's awesome and i was just (laughs) thinking Wow, first week back from uh, like the honeymoon and everything. <laughs> oh yeah, and you are focusing keep on you know binge watching Star Trek. You gotta, gotta keep, love
2: it. Gotta keep the romance. Uh, no, I think Rachel joined me for my wife. Rachel joined me for a couple of those, and uh, there weren't many after that. But no, definitely, it's a great gift, and I love watching Star Trek on Netflix. Still, still working through it.
1: Well, we hope that this today's viewing of Star Trek episodes really reminded you of your of the love for your wife and your marriage's st- strong foundation, because. I think it really helped us, too, because we approached these two episodes today that we watched with a a renewed passion than we normally have for some of the more action movies that we traditionally watch. Um, So the two episodes that we did watch today, and this might end up being a two-part episode because we have a lot to cover. first one we watched is City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, and, Gabe, am I wrong about this, that this is a pretty famous episode of Star Trek?
2: Yeah, this – I mean if you see like the top ten or top five lists, I mean this is con- consistently in there. Um, I, I think it, the script won a Hugo Award. Um, it's uh, it's pretty critically well-recognized even though there was some uh, conflict in terms of the way it was originally written – um, Gene uh, Har- Rod-
1: Har- Harlan Ellison, right?
2: Yeah, Harlan Ellison, and, and he's, he was a pretty like ornery guy, and, and uh, Gene Roddenberry made some edits that he did not appreciate, but the outcome was, was pretty good nonetheless.
1: Hmm. Well, Harlan Ellison, I'm sure we'll get to him too, because he also wrote um, a cool story, A Boy and His Dog, which was made into a movie. Um, it's about it's another one of those post-atomic war, man wandering around uh, in the desert ma- movies, but it's a, a guy, well, I think he's got a dog that talks to him, so it's a pretty fun one. I'm sure we'll get to that one at some point.
2: That's what they uh, turned into Fallout 4, I guess, right?
1: Yep, exactly. So this episode came out on uh, April 6th, 1967, and it was episode 28, near the end of the first series. And I-, I have never seen a full episode of the original series run. I was more of a Star Trek movie fan. So it's definitely quite a-, a shock to delve into this. And-, and also not to see that there was quite a number of uh, nuclear topics in this episode. Um, It sounds like Star Trek really made a mark when it came to the culture of the time and kind of what it took for influence of episodes and plots was really based quite a lot around what was going on in contemporary America as Gene Roddenberry was, was writing these. I know that Star Trek started right around the time of the Cold War after the Cuban Missile Crisis and around the time of China's first nuclear test. So I'm sure the viewing public must have been quite anxious about the risk of nuclear war. But it still seems too right that Star Trek presents a very optimistic picture of what the future could look like, a world where we were peaceful and countries had abolished nuclear weapons for the most part and and had moved past that. Would you kind of understand that that was what the vision that they described not only in these two episodes but in the full canon of Star Trek?
2: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean Star Trek, it's like this post kind of – uh, war, post-capitalist, almost like socialist utopia, which it's kind of weird that they name the main ship there the Enterprise. <laughs> uh, they should name it probably USS Bernie Sanders or something like that. But, <laughs> um, but no, yeah, that's, that's definitely the vision. And um, it's interesting because in a lot of the original series episodes, they kind of have to come up with some plot device whereby they're, you know, either going back in time, that's what we're talking about today, or uh, revisit some planet that has some characteristics of the conflicts that earth's face and the idea of the show is kind of showing how the uh, you know, ideals of the future tie into the realities of, you know, the the condition that that we you know, society finds itself in, you know, in the 1960s.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting too because it seems like some of the technical advancements that are made in the ships, for example, seem to nullify the impact of nuclear weapons. I know that, I I know this is not out of my wheelhouse, but when I was doing research for this episode, it seems like there was one episode of, I don't know if it was Next Generation or the original series, but the, the Romulans, when the other alien races tried to fire a nuclear weapon at the Enterprise, but it's basically, it did nothing. There was no damage to the hull, and it seems like they were nuclear weapons, even though as powerful as they were in the 20th and 21st century, they were replaced by photon torpedoes armed by antimatter. So it seems like nuclear weapons, while they're in there, they're used much more on the sidelines, which is kind of an interesting world to look at. Weapons aren't gone. Weapons of mass destruction are gone. They're just not the ones that contemporary people, where they were watching this, understood.
2: Yeah, they kind of have to come up with, like, uh, allegorical, you know, stand-in for nuclear weapons. And, yeah, as the nuclear age, they harness the power of the atom— In Star Trek, they start to get into more of this, like, quantum, you know, style stuff where, you know, it's, like, space-time and everything. But, yeah, the the themes are still there, at least. Because what's a Photon Torpedo? What's Uh, that? It's never really clearly explained. I mean, obviously, yeah, Photon is... uh, and, you know, an emission of uh, energy in the form of light. So it shoots out of the ship, and it's pretty bright. And then they move on, I think, to uh, quantum torpedoes. Uh, quantum later. torpedoes. Yeah, those are the – yeah. If, if a photon torpedo is like the A-bomb, I guess the quantum torpedo is like the H-bomb or something hmm. like that. But, um, but yeah, they have that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's um, – there's uh matter and antimatter that powers the engines it's i think it's assumed that that stuff's like pretty dangerous um i mean in in Star Trek Two, uh, you know, once again, we're going to do a lot of spoilers here today. Um, so if you haven't seen Star Trek Two, probably uh, turn this off now and go watch Star Trek Two. But but Spock is um, he's killed by uh, radiation, radiation, from, yeah. yeah, from antimatter. So yeah, there, it's not exactly nuclear stuff, but it's there's like a tie in that it has the same level of maybe danger or um, you know creates the same level of fear and, and tension and stuff. I mean, Gene Roddenberry, I mean, he must have been very you know. Thinking about a lot of these issues, he was um, he was a pilot during World War II and, and saw combat. Um, I think he was a B seventeen pilot, um, so you know he lived through that time and probably saw you know and experienced horrors of war and, and uh, you know people dying and certainly saw you know uh, the the dropping of the bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So and then obviously bringing that into the '60s where there's all this kind mm-hmm. of crazy stuff going on, it, uh, it must have left a big mark on him when he put the show together.
1: Well, I know that one of the th- the ways that nuclear weapons appear, and again, not not sure which version of the Star Trek this is, but I guess the Romulan bird of prey, the Romulan spaceship. I guess the Romulans tend to be the evil uh, equivalents. Are they more like the Soviets in the in analogies?
2: Yeah, they're I, the, the Klingons were mostly oh, the, the Klingons, yeah, yeah they were mostly like the Soviet um, kind of counterpart. Um, yeah, The Romulans were definitely bad guys, though, and you know, of course, you could kind of fit the uh, fit the characters to the allegory however you really want but um yeah they were like the um the kind of enemies of the vulcans more Mm. um yeah it's gonna get too nerdy here but yeah the vulcans and the romulans were like the same race and then they they have the splitting where the vulcans become like guided by you know logic and and altruism and the romulans get you know, break off and become uh, mastered by their emotions and anger and hmm. things like that. So,
1: Well, I just know that, I guess, the Romulan Bird of Prey spaceship used a nuclear weapon not as a weapon, but as a self-destruct tool. So I, I wonder if that's a little subtle message by the writers to uh, to nuclear weapon advocates. And the only thing these things are good for in the future is destroying yourself. Yeah. But uh, like Gabe already mentioned, um, nuclear weapons found their way into the Star Trek plots. But in the case of the two episodes that we watched today the crew of the Enterprise must first travel back in time to the 20th century in order to be faced with nuclear fears. So in, uh, in City of the Edge of Forever, um, Joel and Gabe, why don't you guys kind of work us through quickly what happens in this plot so everybody is on the same page. And again, uh, spoiler alert for 50s, um, 60-year-old episodes.
2: Yeah, so um the episode starts off uh they kind of got to set the story up. Um the the Enterprise is, is traveling through some area of space where there's some um time distortion going on. Uh this causes a uh pretty by modern standards corny view of the camera shaking and everyone's kind of flailing about the bridge and and uh there's this part where uh Ensign Sulu, he his console explodes and the doctor comes in to treat him with this highly dangerous substance cordrazine um which for whatever reason dr mccoy is very uh callous uh handling the the hypospray that has it and in, accidentally in, injects it into himself
0: i think you can get it over the counter now <laughs> in your local pharmacy <laughs> but you've, uh you've been taking you know, some cordrazine but uh, you know at the time you know early uh early adopters you know it had some side effects
2: yeah ex- no exactly um Don't tell the FDA, but, uh, so, so, uh, Dr. McCoy, he accidentally injects himself, goes crazy and, uh, kind of starts ranting and raving and goes, uh, off the ship, beams down to this planet where these, uh, time distortions are coming from. Um, they, uh, Captain Kirk creates an away party to go, um, to go find him. Of course, they bring all the senior officers down there. The, the, all the most important people on the ship uh, are sent down to the planet. Well, you don't want to
0: send the you know the lowly guys who just you know the enlisted folk. You know you got to send like the senior senior well, you need, officers.
2: You need like two of them to die on the planet. You need two red shirts right. to to go die.
0: Although, can we just note in this episode, I don't think I saw a single person die well yeah, um, was, from the from the party, yeah, you know, the red true. shirts they they lived,
2: and that yeah. was and it's weird because when they beamed down, I think there was like two or three red shirts in the background, and you you kind of know you kind of wonder if it's coming or not yeah. And, but yeah, you're right it after a certain
0: point, I mean it's a five year mission, I would think like two years in. They're like, oh, you got to go down to the planet, and it's like, oh, I got to wear a red shirt today. You know, you're walking around sweating, just looking for some alien or monster or missile coming at yeah, you. Yeah, know, I, I don't mean, know.
2: can you it's imagine like, the like uniform day on the Enterprise? It's, it's you your, your day, man. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. your day, exactly. Well, so they so they get down to the planet, um, and uh, they're trying to find McCoy, and in the process, they find this portal that is causing these time distortions that was afflicting the Enterprise. Um, the portal. It starts talking to them and basically tells them that they can see into their past and and uh, starts showing them scenes from Earth past. During this process, uh, they find McCoy. they uh, Spock subdues him, but McCoy gets back up and still in this kind of manic like uh, lunatic mode, runs through the portal. And all of a sudden you the um, Uhura, the communications officer, says, "Oh, the enterprise is gone. It's disappeared. Uh-oh. and And the portal basically says, You know, Your your timeline has been changed. Uh, McCoy went to the past. He did something in the past that changed the timeline. Uh, And this kind of sets up the story whereby Kirk and Spock go into the portal uh, to try to get to the same time that McCoy goes back to and prevent him from altering the events of history.
0: Can I just stop you right there? I do find it interesting that he changes time, which results in the Enterprise completely disappearing, and yet the people down on the planet are still there.
2: Yeah, that's um, God, you know, every Star Trek episode <laughs> you see, I mean, you could probably do one of these. Might be some plot holes. Yeah, well, let's say the maybe the uh, this device, the the guardian of, uh, they're within the
0: time distortion, exactly. so they're they, neither they're here the nor bubble. there. Yeah, okay.
2: The guardian of forever, which is the name of the portal, he must have protected them somehow. You okay. know, yeah. All right. So, but I mean, that's an
0: interesting question when you get into any kind of time travel discussion. When it's a, a movie or TV show, is what are the uh, What are the rules of time travel? Does when you make a change, does it change it
1: later, or? Does it yeah, I'm sure we'll get we'll get to that maybe when we're finishing the second episode too, which is also about time travel because they definitely change the rules, whether or not they're playing by Terminator rules, which is everything that has happened is going to happen and you can't really change it, or if it's Back to the Future rules, where you can change something, but there might be some sort of alternate history. Uh, or alternate timeline that gets created, but
2: so they get down to Earth in the 1930s, uh, or actually in the year 1930. So it's it's you know the United States is recovering from the Great Depression. There's a lot of poverty around, and they're kind of taken to be two kind of uh, drifters, and uh, they end up getting taken in uh, by this woman, um, and she's kind of the main uh, the main guest character in this in this episode. Her name is Edith Keeler. Um, she runs a uh, mission. Uh, for, you know people who are needy during this time and they get they end up getting taken in by her uh, she gives them a job and a place to live and through this job they're able to kind of make some money so that Spock can get these components he needs to um, to to build whatever device he needs to kind of look into the timeline and everything now while this is going on um, you know Edith is getting uh, suspicious of these guys I mean, Spock, you know, he has the pointy ears, he keeps them covered, but he still acts very differently. Um, You know, Kirk is, the way they talk, it sounds like they're not from that time. And uh, Edith herself, during one of the uh, dinners at her mission, she uh, gives some speech about how there's going to be a future where uh, people will not be spending money on war anymore. They'll be spending money on uh, great things. She refers to uh, harnessing the power of the atom and... uh, you know, humans traveling into space. So she's very much a visionary, almost like Shades of Roddenberry.
1: Um, It reminds me a lot of, so H.G. Wells, the same science fiction author author that brought us World of the Worlds, wrote a book in 1913 called The World Set Free. And in that, uh, he basically predicted things like atomic bombs and and nuclear power plants and all these different promises that nuclear science, something that was just created uh, as a concept maybe 10 or 15 years ago, Uh, It's an amazing uh, use of that idea in a Star Trek episode because the people around that time in 1930, the nuclear science promised so much. They even promised nuclear power would be so cheap it wouldn't be worth metering. You would just be free energy. And people used to talk about the wonderful health uh, effects of uh, radioactivity, that you should eat a little bit of radioactive elements with your bowl of cereal in the morning to prolong your health.
2: So after your asbestos uh, pill, yeah, yep. in the morning, and then so some plutonium.
1: It's definitely a, a, I think it's true that when she talked about what she did, um, it represents a, a vision of nuclear power and, and nuclear sciences for the future.
0: Just interesting to note that just a few years later, you know, once nuclear weapons come about, then all of a sudden you have uh, nuclear radiation issues becoming these. Forces with all these comic book characters that bestow all these unique, interesting superpowers that give you great abilities, kind of uh, taking advantage of the mystery and uh, unknown qua- quality, I guess, of you know
1: nuclear weapons and and nuclear energy. So all this sounds good, but so what's the problem here? Um, why do why did Kirk, Spock and Kirk need to go back in time? Everything seems
2: fine so far. So the the, the problem, and and this is you know Spock finally gets enough uh parts to figure out what's going on um uh, spock finds out that basically mccoy gets sent back to this critical point in the in earth's timeline and it it involves this woman uh, edith and basically this woman edith uh in the normal timeline where mccoy didn't get sent back and interferes um edith gets uh, dies in an accident she she's she dies in a traffic accident and is hit by a car and uh events progress normally but what Spock finds out is that uh, through the interference uh, with Dr. McCoy, um, Edith actually survives. She's, she's safe from that accident. And she goes on to lead a, uh, a pretty successful peace movement uh, in the 1930s. This peace movement delays the United States' entry into World War II. And as a result of this delay, the Nazis uh, are able to get the technology needed to build an atomic bomb. And by having the A-bomb before everyone else... The Nazis are effectively able to win World War II, and by consequence alter the whole timeline. Uh, there's a, you know, it's it's not explicitly stated, but the implication is that there's war on Earth, and you know, Earth is never able to develop into a peaceful society. The Federation is never created. Uh, you know, humans don't go explore space, and the altruistic future that Gene Roddenberry imagines with Star Trek just never happens.
1: Everyone's worst fear: nuclear Nazis.
2: While this is going on, Kirk and Spock need to uh, determine what they're going to do, and uh, this is all complicated by the fact that Kirk, surprise, surprise, uh, <laughs> develops a romantic interest in in the uh, woman. But unlike, I mean, there's a lot of episodes where, you know, Kirk has like this reputation as intergalactic like Casanova, ladies' man, yeah, uh, walking around in tight pants and subdu you know, uh, wooing women all over the galaxy. Um, but unlike a lot of those i think this this episode for me at least had more it was more of a heartfelt thing i mean you could feel this connection and i think in many ways that's because i I think there's a lot of gene roddenberry himself in this character of edith and and her vision of the future and i think you can kind of see kirk like is very much attracted to not you know she's she's a beautiful woman but he's attracted to this part of her that looks to the future that's very optimistic
0: well you know if if I could also see it at, you know, Roddenberry sees himself in Kirk as someone who wants to kind of explore the unknown and then finding that same ideal in another. And so it's falling in love with the person and obviously falling in love with the ideals that, that kind of create that union. It's beautiful.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think that, that's what came through for me as well. Um, but, um, so Kirk kind of faces this very difficult um, decision. is Is he going to allow... Uh, Edith to to die and is he going to um you know allow the timeline to go back and by letting her die all these great wonderful things will happen but you know by letting her die uh he's obviously letting uh someone that he he has fallen for um you know be killed which is not easy and there's this there's this great scene where um uh she's at the top of the stairs in the mission and she she trips Kirk's there next to her on the steps and she trips and she's about to fall right down the stairs and Kirk just instinctively reaches out and and saves her from falling and um Spock is kind of watching and you see this look on Kirk's face like he knows what he just did he he potentially altered the timeline right there he wasn't he's not supposed to be saving her and you kind of get the idea that he's going to have to fight his instinct his instinct is to protect this woman but he needs to you know consciously fight that
0: so what i thought was puzzling to me though throughout the episode is and I guess maybe this is just Spock's, you know, unwavering loyalty to Kirk, his friend and boss on the ship. But, you know, I would think Spock. You know, again, this is me as the kind of just the the moviegoer, the TV show watcher. But I, I would think once Spock has certainty about Keeler's role in history, you know, at the beginning that they're they're only seeing fragments of the future, and so they they don't know whether Keeler is supposed to survive. Or if she's supposed to die and and what was the the history that was supposed to have happened. So they're trying to figure out what they have to do. But I think once they know she has to die, you know, I'm, I'm expecting Spock, you know, the logical one, to be like, okay, she has to die. Walks right up to her, breaks her neck, you know. From my point of view, that was a big plot hole in my mind of Spock saying, well, the logical thing is to allow her to die. We could just kill her right now and move on.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think –
1: Got a cold, cold cold-hearted version of 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 Spock.
2: Yeah, and he's wearing like this, like burglar cap. So it'd be very, uh, yeah, it would probably be appropriate if he just came up behind her and. Isn't
1: there that one famous episode of Star Trek where Captain uh, Kirk and Spock have to fight, and they fight with those kind of Q-tip things that are American gladiators, but one of them is sharp, and they have to fight on some sort of planet because the people will kill both of them if um, they don't fight. So Spock goes, "Well, I guess." I guess we're going to go and do it.
2: Yeah, that was in a muck time um, where, uh, yeah, where they have to battle to the death. And, and Spock just doesn't kind of care. He just, like, does it. <laughs> and it's just I mean, it's pretty amazing. Um, so much
1: for his friend, Jim.
2: Yeah. But, no, I mean, you know, back to Joel's point. Um, I don't know. I, I think, you know, one of the criticisms I have read about this episode is that, you know, Star Trek is all about these great ideals and, you know, being noble and, and humanitarian and yet, the plot involves letting a woman allowing, die.
0: A, allowing a nice person who's doing really good things literally for lots of poor people at the at that moment but then also setting up this peace movement to die
2: yeah exactly and and I think um, it's easier to have them taking a passive role and allowing time to run its course rather than actually taking an active role I mean that's what I think Roddenberry might have
1: said about that that sounds a lot to me like the what I know about the Star Trek from Star Trek movies is the prime directive the you're not supposed to interfere with the internal politics of a uh of a local planet um, is, that, is that the case here
2: yeah I mean there's this concept in star trek called uh i mean the, the prime directive once again to get pretty nerdy is you know when you go to a civilization that has not yet um developed the capability to fly far in space you're, you you're not supposed to make contact with them um but then there's this there's this concept of uh, kind of the temporal prime directive in some of the episodes, which is a similar thing uh, applied to time, where you shouldn't, you should try not to alter events um, as they've happened in the past. Um, but once again, there's many, there's some episodes in which they break this. There's some episodes in which they bend it. There's a lot of questions about how you, how you adhere to it.
1: Okay, so Edith, she must die, does she? So
2: yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, you know, events are. You know time keeps on going um uh McCoy ends up showing up uh eventually in the plot line as as they expect him to um he He kind of shows up on the street and similar thing is is he's ranting and raving just like he was before, and uh, he ends up actually getting taken in by the same mission um at this 21st street mission by edith and there's like a scene where he he goes to get something to eat he meets uh, edith for the first time and spock's working in the kitchen behind him and they just kind of miss each other so spock and kirk don't know that he's there he doesn't know what's going on he's still like in a delirious state
1: two spaceships passing in the night (laughs) exactly well done
2: um and and so um they're, they're kind of both at the same mission and meanwhile, Kirk is very distraught about this, um, you know, this conundrum that he faces. Um, but it eventually comes to a head in which uh, Kirk and um, and Edith uh, go out to a movie, a Clark Gable movie. Which, conveniently enough, uh, you know, they don't know who Kirk and McCoy don't know who Clark Gable is, and she like laughs at it, and and they um, they're going out to the movie and uh edith says something like oh my friend mccoy said the same thing meaning that he said that he didn't know who clark gable was either and kirk freezes and says oh mccoy like hold on i i need to i need to go tell spock wait here and uh very abruptly runs across the street spock is on the other side um tell spock about mccoy um mccoy pops out of the background right behind them and they see him and meanwhile, Edith is crossing the street, um, which has has passing cars. And um, McCoy sees Edith crossing street the street and about to get hit by a truck. And he lunges out to try to save her. And Kirk knows exactly what happens. He he restrains McCoy and prevents her from saving her. So she ends up being uh, involved in this accident, and she gets, um, uh, you know, she gets killed as as she was supposed to in the original timeline.
0: And I I think like one of the biggest traumatic moments other than, you know, her actually getting struck is that moment where McCoy is the one who sees her get hit and Kirk is looking away because he's holding back McCoy. And then McCoy looks at him and he said, I could have saved her. You knew I could have and you let her die even while he was, you know, dealing with this ethical dilemma the entire episode. And then he just proceeds to, to look away, realizing, you know, he was able to do it, but, you know. What what did he have to give up in order to do it?
2: Yeah, no, it, it's really sad, and I think Spock says something like he knows, Doctor, he knows, and you just see the look on Kirk's face, which is kind of rare. I mean, and you really, I think, get a sense that this event has really affected Kirk, and in, in in a way that he probably takes back with him to the ship and and internalizes for the you know future episodes.
1: But at least the Nazis weren't able to get an atomic bomb. And I didn't really know how much nuclear topics would be in this, but there turned out to be quite a few. Um, Some of the big ones that I've already mentioned, this idea of the promise of nuclear energy in the early part of the 1900s, um, we've already kind of mentioned. But the big central part of this plot is the U.S. is delayed from entering World War II. That delay during, I guess they call peace negotiations, allows Germany to build an atomic bomb and win World War II. So I think one of the cool things that we should talk about is how close were the Nazis to actually building an atomic bomb? And then after that discussion, I think um, we can talk a little bit about what the role of um, anti-war movements and the nuclear freeze movement um, from the 50s to the 90s and what that did and its effect on the progress of uh, countries, superpowers, uh, nuclear arsenals. So... The episode assumed in our unaltered timeline that Germany was very, very close to building an atomic weapon, one that could win them the war. And the only thing that's stopping them was the U.S. entering the war when it did. This is clearly the impression that the United States and the U.K. had at the time. And it makes sense because Germany had entered um, nuclear physics and and the knowledge about uranium earlier than any other country. Uh, Nuclear fission was discovered by German chemist Otto Hahn in 1938 – one of the world's leading theoretical physicists, uh, Nobel laureate Werner Heisenberg. Yes, the same guy who invented the theory of uh, a principle of uncertainty, invented what we know now as quantum mechanics, and also was the drug kingpin uh, name that uh, Walter White took in Breaking Bad. He, all that Renaissance man, w- remained in Germany and was actively involved in the atomic bomb and Germany's nuclear physics projects. So the prospect of Hitler with an atomic bomb was a little bit too much of a risk for the U.S. and the U.K. to ignore. But historians and nuclear experts now quite dispute how close Germany was to actually building an atomic bomb. Um, And there are several reasons why this is the case. Germany had great difficulty during the war getting the fissile material, the weapons-grade fissile material that they need in order to fuel the bomb. There were Production delays, science, basic science delays, they didn't understand um, what type of material they needed to do to be able to moderate a reactor, a bunch of these actual technical challenges that faced them. And more importantly, it never really prioritized the bomb project or even cared about theoretical science, a theoretical physicist, something that uh, turns out the Nazi leadership saw as more of a Jewish science without utility for the war. Theoretical concepts seemed like they didn't provide uh, an immediate utility for the war machine.
2: So so I, I guess, you know, when, for the non-nuclear you know, guy here, uh, or one of the two mm-hmm. non-nuclear guys, um, so what was, because clearly, I mean, the bomb was such a national priority here. And, you know, Einstein, I think, wrote the letter, um, you know, advocating that the bomb should be created. Is there any uh, documentation you know of? I mean, was Hitler aware of kind of the progress? I mean, what did, what was his position on it? I mean, it's very interesting to hear that this mm-hmm. wasn't on the radar as much because it could be such a game changer.
1: Well, this is, again, this is one of those um, he said, she said things because people disputed, I'll get to that a little later, German scientists about what their actual interest was in a bomb. Many of them claimed later on that the reason why Germany didn't make one was because they didn't want to. Um, they knew that the bomb was going to be an awful mor- moral choice to make and they decided to kind of back off from that. But... Also at the time, most German scientists thought that a bomb might be possible, but it would take a lot longer to build one than the war would actually last. They thought Germany was going to win or lose the war a lot quicker um, than it actually turned out how much the fighting took place. So um, in addition to that, there was also quite a mass exodus of Germany's greatest scientists, many of them Jewish, um, out of Germany and Italy and unfortunately for them into the hands of the Allies. So I guess that explains the Nazis' interest in uh, pursuing uh
0: artifacts of Christian history like the Ark of the Covenant mm-hmm. and uh Holy Grail. You they, know, like the nuclear bomb, well we lost you know, we lost a couple of key folks to develop it, so plan B. Well,
1: they still have Holy that, Grail they still have that, wisely, my friend. They still had that guy with the uh the fedora and the and the duster. Uh, And the crazy glasses. Um, So they had him. He was still there. He was still on board.
0: Right. It was the normal one who was doing the nuclear weapons, but they got that guy. It's like, Jerry, now that guy's messed up. He'll get some crazy weapons, like (laughs) a cup.
1: It also didn't help that uh, Germany was getting its butt kicked on the eastern front, which put a big big uh, pressure on resources and manpower in terms of their ability to to work um, on a a bomb project itself. So even though the United States didn't get involved uh, in this timeline of Edith living, there was still... Uh, a, a big struggle uh, for the war um, for, m- for much of Germany in terms of the Eastern Front.
2: So, I mean, just hypothetically, and I, I don't know if there's an answer, I mean, what, how much time would you think that the, the, the Germans would have, you know, feasibly needed, given the kind of current war conditions going on, that, the, you know, they're fighting battles on, on multiple fronts, and, you know, what's a realistic, how long might the United States have to have been delayed to really give them the chance to do this?
1: I don't think it was just a question of time. They had a number of technical and scientific challenges and just basic, different approach. Um, Once Hitler's uh, blitzkrieg against the Soviet Union hit a wall in the winter of 1941, the German War Office moved to prioritize uranium studies um, in favor of other types of raw materials. So even if the United States didn't get involved, they they pushed their sciences in in the direction of a different strategy. Um, Very little money, at that particular time was being dedicated to uranium development. Most of it was being done, uh, all the science was re- being done in very cramped university labs that weren't really suited for the scale of research that needed to be done. And at its peak, and this is a huge, uh, starking statistic, as many as 100 people were employed in the Nazi atomic bomb effort at its peak, compared to 250,000 in the American uh, atomic bomb project. So that really gives you a sense from early on what their priority was. So giving them more time to be able to develop a bomb doesn't change the fact that they didn't have the resources um, and some of the technical knowledge and also just the people working on it because they were working on other things
2: yeah I mean it that's that's fascinating just to, to hear that and you know we um, I think for those of us who you know I, I don't know much about history from that time maybe just the basics you just assume that everyone there, there's this mm-hmm. race afoot to like who's gonna get there first um, I, I just I mean, I wonder then why, you know, clearly the, the writers of the episode, I mean, I don't know, maybe they had knowledge of this or not. You know, I wonder why they invoked this idea. You know, they could have just said the United States delayed their entry into the war and the Germans won just because they had more time. Um, you know, I almost wonder why they bring the nuclear element. Maybe it's just because it was the fear at the time and it it might have plugged into people's, uh, you know, uh, worst fears and imagination.
0: I mean my presumption was again not knowing you know the, the the histories of the various countries and their interest or disinterest in the case of Germany in pursuing nuclear weapons but my my presumption is the writers depended on uh, audiences assumptions that because we know the nuclear bomb was so uh, demonstrative or you know authoritative in ending you know uh, aspects of the war or, or the war that the race was necessarily going to go to who would be the first to actually develop the nuclear weapon. And so even though Germany wasn't actually that interested, it appears that that would be necessarily the way it would be ended. It would just be a matter of whether it's the United States or or Germany, uh, regardless of the fact that there are many other countries also involved in the conflict.
1: And it wasn't like Germany wasn't interested in an atomic bomb project. Heisenberg said several presentations on what a potential impact could be of Nuclear sciences. Now, a lot of his research and the research of German scientists that were left in Germany were focused more on what they called the, uh, the engine, the, basically a nuclear power reactor. That was their, their thought of what could be done uh, in the short term. Um, Heisenberg was very pessimistic about the chances that they could build a bomb quick enough. Um, he said basically this was due to a lack of technical knowledge and know how about how to build uranium enrichment facilities that made the bomb material that they needed. Um, but some of the major people that were involved, uh, Albert Speer, or Speer, uh, S P E E R, um, he was one of Hitler's close advisors. He was the Minister of Armaments and War Production. Said that the lack of enthusiasm from his science team basically gave him gave him the impression that the bomb uh, could no longer have any sort of bearing on the course of the war. So there was a series of steps that took place. Well, even though they were interested early on, they didn't necessarily follow through with that and. So Albert Speer, the same guy who was Hitler's closest confidant, uh, behind his back doubted whether or not Hitler understood the bomb's implication. He said that the idea quite obviously strained Hitler's intellectual capacity, and he was unable to grasp the revolutionary nature of nuclear physics. So he proceeded then to basically halt the bomb project in 1942, because they figured nothing could be completed between three and four years, and they thought the war would already be done by then. They shifted on to other projects.
2: So through the kind of lens of history, you know, we're, we're able to know this in, in hindsight. But what, I mean, what did the United mm-hmm. States think? Uh, w- what did they think the Germans were up to with respect to getting the bomb at well, the time?
1: No one no one told the Allies of any of these delays or lack of interest. The, the U.S. and the U.K. operated under the assumption that the Nazis were mere months away from an atomic bomb. Um, a number of the key scientists involved in the Manhattan Project, people such as Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein, they uh, only agreed to lend their scientific genius because they believed Germany was going to beat the Allies to the bomb, a pretty scary proposition for them. Um, James Conant, uh, who was one of the key scientific and policy advisors on the Manhattan Project, declared in early 1942, if the Germans are hard at work, they cannot be far behind since they started in 1939 with the same basic initial facts as the British and ourselves. They are still... Plenty of competent scientists left in Germany. They are, mu- they may be ahead of us by as much as a year. And furthermore, he argued that a uh, three months delay could be fatal to the United States' hopes of getting a bomb before Germans, uh, before the Germans, and winning the war. So, the kind of philosophy and plot that the Star Trek episode that we watched today has was definitely the impression that a lot of the um, scientists had at that particular time. Another memo from some people that were involved in the Manhattan Project. This is from August 1943. Warned that recent reports, both through newspapers and through Secret Service, have given indications that the Germans may be in possession of a powerful new weapon, which is expected to be ready between November and January. The memo goes on to predict that the Germans will have, by the end of this year, enough material accumulated to be able to make a large number of gadgets, which is what the Manhattan Project's code name was for atomic bomb which they will then release at the same time on England, Russia, and the United States. So certainly a big fear, although it later turned out that that secret new weapon was the V-1 and V-2 rockets, not an atomic bomb. So they were certainly getting information, but it wasn't correct information about the uh, progress of uh, the German bomb project. So is, is there a chance that some of the
0: confusion about the Germans' pacing of of innovation was – at any in any way a result of misinformation during the war that they were did did they ever laid on or try to even though they weren't as uh dedicated Mm -hmm. uh, you know you mentioned the numbers is it possible that they nonetheless suggested or or tried to misinform the allies that that they were that far along to almost throw them off and distract them with signs that they didn't appear to be as interested in?
1: I think that that was still, it's still being debated. Niels Bohr, he was a European scientist and he had a conversation uh, with Werner uh, Heisenberg when they were still colleagues because they used to collaborate on a lot of science projects. And this was way uh, early before the, the war even started. They had a conversation about whether or not the bomb could happen. And both of them came away with different interpretations of the other person's desire to build an atomic bomb and whether or not they believed it could be Um, a potential thing that could happen. I know one of the things that uh, Bohr said was he left that meeting with the impression that that Heisenberg believed a bomb could happen and that Germany was working on it. So that fear was what um, then got instilled into other scientists when when Bohr would go talk to people who eventually worked on the Manhattan Project. So I don't know if that was necessarily misinformation, but it was certainly working with a limited set of information, which is sometimes just as bad as um, having false information. Right. Uh, But there was a a really interesting espionage mission that was done near the end of World War II in 1944 to get to the bottom of this. This was called Operation um, ALSOS, A-L-S-O-S. It was aimed to determine how far the German uh, program had advanced, and the operation concluded pretty quickly that German scientists had made very little progress beyond trying to build a nuclear reactor in the wine cellar of one of their hideouts. So that was their their homebrew project in in the basement. Uh, It was about as far as they were able to get. Um, When the Allies, this is really interesting, they secretly recorded um, the German scientists that they captured after World War II. They put them in a a couple of rooms in a place called Farm Hill in in the UK and just listened to what they talked about. Because after um, the United States dropped the atomic bomb on Japan, all these scientists sat around a room and said, guys, why didn't we do this? We thought this couldn't happen. Did Did you? Did you? Hey, Phil, did you think you could have gotten this done? You told me earlier this couldn't get done. And then Bob was talking to Phil about why they couldn't do it. And they had to come up with some sort of an explanation why Germany didn't build the bomb. So they had excuses relative to the manpower that was involved, whether or not Hitler really wanted one, whether or not the scientists were, were there. And then eventually kind of later came to the conclusion that their public response would be didn't have the technical knowledge, didn't have the raw materials. And we had some issues with the sciences. But privately, when they were talking to the friends and family, it was because they didn't want to build a bomb, that they knew a bomb was going to be an awful thing. They didn't want Hitler to win, because at this point, some of the information about uh, the Holocaust was coming out. So they felt that it was very important to get in front of that story and to say that they never wanted that maniac, Hitler, to get an atomic bomb, um, maybe not working as hard or falsifying some of their research, that they would then go out um, to delay building a bomb. So even though the United States entered the war when it did, and in this alternate timeline of Star Trek where it was delayed, um, the U.S. was delayed in entering the war, potentially if this theory about whether or not the scientists actually wanted Hitler to have a bomb may have even further delayed Hitler's bomb project. So it's one of those things that it's, it definitely is being debated about the extent of the scientist's involvement.
2: More than, like, a well-oiled war machine. It sounds like a bunch of, like, pissed-off interns who, like, don't want to, like, make copies for their, their boss or something.
1: Well, it's it's one of those things that um, – it, it's sometimes silly things can happen which can stop a project from going forward. One of the – they wanted to have a – the people who were interested in the atomic bomb project wanted to organize a meeting with top Nazi leadership to say, look, this bomb is a real thing that can happen. So they tried to organize a presentation and – But unfortunately, the secretary that was assigned to send out the invitations accidentally sent the wrong program, the wrong lecture notes to the people that they were inviting because there was two lectures that same day at that same location. So all of these Nazi leaders got – these very high-profile people got this really boring lecture that was unrelated to something as exciting as the atomic bomb. So they all politely declined to attend the meeting. Jerry, you had one job. (laughs) You had one job. Yeah, so at that at that, at that event, um, Heisenberg presented um, the potential for the military application of the bomb. So at least one guy was there that was interested into what he had to say. But one of the cool quotes from there, from Werner Heisenberg, was asked, how large of a bomb capable of destroying a city, what would it need to be? And he sat for a second and thought and put his hands out and said, about as large as a pineapple. That's... So certainly um, – bureaucratic mishaps and fruit-based humor
2: that's it's fascinating and i mean just to kind of bring it back to the you know the the theme of the episode and you know there's this theme in the episode that it, you know history kind of hangs on this linchpin and if something goes a, a certain way you know the 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 tide of history can be forever changed and you know you think about stuff like that you know what if at this meeting um, you know what if somebody woke up and paid attention and said hey this is amazing or you know what if something changed slightly it's pretty incredible to just think um you know given the fact that the the nazis had the time advantage just how uh you know how things just went the way they did and how they could have been completely different
1: well sure um my impression is is that the the third reich's failure to build an atomic bomb wasn't simply a matter of time it was It represented a failure at many different levels. Uh, Troubled with basic science. Um, It represented little interest of the Nazi leadership in the field of nuclear theoretical physics. Um, Interpersonal disputes between various people that were involved in the project, all wanting to look out for their own individual interests. And more importantly, a lack of uh, the critical resources, a a failure of the bureaucratic leadership at the top to mount a serious effort to build, um, a serious effort to bring together an interdisciplinary team that was necessary to build a bomb. There's a reason why everyone refers to the Manhattan Project as the model of a national endeavor. You know, we need a Manhattan Project on this or that. Because the invention of nuclear weapons was as much a planning and managerial feat as it was a scientific one. So, sure, if the Nazis had more time and less American soldiers pestering them on the Western Front, they could have maybe eventually gotten their act together. But I don't think it's nearly as simple as the episode makes it out to be. Um, If aliens would have sent me back in time uh, to when this episode was being written, I probably would have changed the plot to have McCoy accidentally give science tips to Werner Heisenberg. Something like, oh yeah, I'm pretty sure graphite would be better at moderating that reactor than heavy water, but what do I know? I'm a doctor, not
0: a nuclear physicist. That's pretty super critical, Tim. Come on now.
2: Yeah, one thing I remember just going back to the episode was the the talk about um, specifically how it, how the Nazis were able to create the bomb and it had something to do with heavy water that the heavy water production was allowed to continue because of the U.S. delayed uh, entry into the war in that altered timeline.
1: One of the key turning points uh, against the German atomic bomb program was the destruction of the their supply of heavy water that was coming from the high. Concentration plant in Norway, so a heavy water plant in Norway. One of the key aspects to building your stock of fissile material, namely plutonium, for your bomb, is you need to control the rate that your nuclear reactor basically causes uh, fission. So, when you control that rate of fission, you can do things, um, otherwise, your reactor overheats and you won't be able to, you'll have a smoldering pile of a machine instead of. Um, the type of plutonium that you need, you need to find something to be able to slow that rate or to moderate it. So the Americans figured out that you can use graphite, pure graphite, to moderate the reactors. Germany, though, because of some of the research that they did that showed um, that graphite wouldn't be very good, mostly because they weren't using pure graphite, they relied on heavy water. So heavy water is something which you can use to moderate a reactor because it has a different type of hydrogen isotope um, that can slow the rate of neutrons that pass through it. Therefore moderating the amount of fission in the reactor but it's really hard to make it takes a lot of time and a lot of power so once you take out that heavy water plant you basically create a major choke point in the country's bomb uh, making program so we knew this the united states knew this and the, more importantly the british knew it because they were following the german program a lot closer than we were at the early point of the war a commando raid operation gunner side took place um which basically sabotaged this plant from working. Now, this is another major feat of the war, uh, which was done in a Kirk Douglas movie called The Heroes of Telemark. I'm sure we'll get to that one at some point as well. But um, this sabotage operation basically shut down the plant for a while, was restarted, and then precision bombing by the U.S. and the U.K. shut it down again. So the Nazis realized we need our heavy water, our little bit of heavy water that we have left that wasn't destroyed, needs to get back to Germany. So as this was being put onto a boat in uh, February of 1944, special forces from the Norwegian resistance fighters um, and British special operations team blew it up and sunk it and made it go into the bottom of this lake. This was something that I think that the episode probably didn't mean to, but it kind of uh, forgot about the role that the non-U.S. parts of this allied operation were involved with, that people... The British and the Norwegian resistance fighters were heavily critical in stopping the the German bomb-making
2: programs. It's funny, um, you know, flash forward here to 2016, and uh, you, you can actually buy heavy water uh, online. On um, Amazon? That there's a company called United Nuclear, and uh, I've always wanted to get it because apparently, when you make ice cubes out of it, instead of floating at the top because it's heavier than the rest of the water, they sink to the bottom. But, you just so, want to put that in your scotch. Yeah, exactly. So the Nazis just needed to build a time machine to come in 2016 to buy the heavy water. It's that simple.
1: So after the war, uh, Heisenberg and other German scientists claimed that they never actually wanted to build an atomic bomb in the first place because they didn't want Hitler to have one. They constantly said that they sabotaged uh, Hitler's plans, delayed or falsified their work, or they really didn't give it their all, basically. Um, This excuse is still hotly debated because there definitely was work on an atomic bomb project. And really, no one wants to be told by their peers that they just screwed up. They want to have some sort of other excuse. But... One quote in particular is really interesting because it brags uh, about how Germany couldn't figure out the bomb, and that was a good thing. Um, It's from German physicist uh, Carl Friedrich uh, von Weissensacker in August 1945. He says, history will record that the Americans and the English made a bomb, and at the same time in in Germany, under the Hitler regime, produced a workable nuclear energy reactor. In other words, the peaceful development of the uranium engine, the nuclear power reactor, was made in Germany under the Hitler regime, whereas the Americans and the English developed this ghastly weapon of war. So kind of a a bit of a sick burn back to us um, on the question of whether or not Germany tried to figure out a bomb and basically decided that they didn't want one. So you can decide whether or not you think that's true, um, all of our historian listeners, but that certainly uh, plays an interesting perspective on whether or not Edith Keller needed to die in, in in the end.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting because they, um, you know, the episode makes this kind of clear cut um, distinction that either she lives or dies. That there's no other potential outcome. This is a key, uh, key kind of splinter in the timeline, and it could kind of go either way. So it's interesting to just uh, hear that maybe there could have been that third outcome, and she mm-hmm. could live and. Kirk takes her back to the Enterprise and she lives happily ever after in the utopian future she dreams of.
1: I think that's left for, for fan fiction at this point. But So the sec- that leads me, though, to the second thing I think would be interesting to talk about, which is the history of anti-war and the nuclear freeze movement. Because even though I want to save this uh, discussion in detail for another podcast, I think it's worth mentioning because this is obviously a big part of the plot. Um, well, the The global nuclear freeze movement really gained strength after a wave of anti-nuclear power protests and anti-war protests in general that kind of peaked in the 1970s and the 80s. Its roots can be found in some of the scientists that were involved in the Manhattan Project that later regretted their involvement, especially after a series of atmospheric nuclear tests that took place uh, in Operation Crossroads, which was at Bikini Atoll in the summer of 1946. It basically resulted in fallout that pushed many of the area's residents out of the area for safety purposes. And combined with a hydrogen bomb test in 1954 that um, poisoned several of the crew members and killed one of them on the Japanese fishing boat called, unfortunately, the Lucky Dragon, um, the public became very agitated and at the potential of the damage of nuclear weapons. So there was lots of protests, lots of um, people calling for either the – no longer pursuing nuclear weapons, uh, a rollback, a global disarmament movement. In 1982, there was one million people protesting in Central Park, rallying against nuclear weapons. And today we still see that in the global zero group movement, which includes about 300 world leaders and other big luminaries organizing citizens to push their own leaders towards nuclear disarmament. So the idea of some one person or a group of people um, having an impact on this particular uh, debate is certainly something that, that existed because while leaders still pursued nuclear weapons, they may not have pursued them at the pace that they did without public support um, may have limited their uh, range of options that they ended up having. We are not the only scholars who debate these important issues, gentlemen. Michael Lewis, a professor at Christopher Newport University, wrote a chapter in the book, I recommend everyone to read this, Star Trek and History a edited volume exploring how the show covered and was influenced by real-world historical events. Lewis, on this issue that we watched, really had something to say. He doubted that the plot of on the city of the edge of forever could have happened, whether or not Edith Keller, who he describes as not a very famous person, just a social worker um, who ran a flop house, had with no national campaign to help her, how she could overcome American support for the British, who were under siege of the Germans, and also their hatred of Japan um, after Pearl Harbor. He concluded if someone as influential as Charles Lindbergh, who was a very famous person who was against getting into World War II, if he couldn't make headway against the rising tide of war sentiment, how could it, this uh, virtually unknown social worker have? So a separate question about the, the potential for a human in one person to make an impact. A little pessimistic, but it seems a lot less optimistic than uh, Gene Roddenberry would have.
2: Yeah, it seems like another Edith Keller burn there, but... Yeah, some people just don't like them. So I think one other, you know, thing for me at least that this episode brings up is, um, you know, it, it ties in once again to this conundrum of do you, um, you know, do you let one person die to achieve this greater good? And there's this big theme in, uh, especially the Star Trek movies, this idea that the um, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And it's kind of implicitly made here that. That Edith needs to die to uh, have a better future for more people, and this got me thinking about, you know, the U.S. decision to drop nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which, uh, you know, clearly brought a, a rapid end to the war. But there's, I think, this debate of, well, you know, we killed we killed many people, including uh, including innocent civilians, um, in order to achieve that greater good. And I think this is a question that you know Star Trek comes out in the same place almost as. What we actually did, uh, which is that it, it was justified. But, you know, I'm just curious, you know, what you guys think about, you know, if revisiting that decision in, in light of this episode and in light of kind of the bigger ideas that, that we're thinking about here.
0: Well, I, I would just note, and, and I think it's more explicitly stated, I think, I mean, literally in the second episode uh, that we've been looking at with Star Trek, where they say, you know, this was actually the way that history was supposed to have occurred so we didn't go back in time and alter history this actually was the history that it was back then and we're just discovering it so we're 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 now the ones that are moving forward even though we're moving backward and realizing so i I took away from both of those episodes that you know the the creators were talking about the ethical dilemma of when faced with the ability to alter history you know which direction you take you can also look at it as, well, do you really have the power to alter history, or are you merely following the way history was supposed to have, have gone?
1: That's certainly true, but it's also when, – when Spock was arguing with Kirk about why they couldn't save her, even though he was in love with this one individual person, that he talked in terms of the numbers. He said millions would die if we don't follow through with this. So even though they were correcting what went wrong in the timeline
0: – But they didn't correct it.
1: That's what they corrected the fact that McCoy saved Edith, which caused the world to look different. They were correcting that individual thing. They were stopping that from happening.
0: Right, but as we'll see in the in the second episode with time travel, I think it's I don't know if it's Kirk or or someone states, maybe it was someone else, where they talk about the fact that like we we were here all all along Mm -hmm. and we you know, we led to so if anything, that brief moment where the enterprise is gone. That's the outlier in the overall kind of continuity oh, yeah, of the, yeah. the narrative. I
1: think it's. I think you're. I think we're both confused about the the inconsistent time travel rules that happen. But because in that later episode, it seems like no matter what they would have done, um, the Enterprise was always involved in the history of these events. But I think in this one, the that memorial question about what's more important is it saving a million people or millions and millions of people or saving right. one person. I think that underlining. Moral calculation, which usually people refer to as a utilitarian calculation, um, is something that the people who were involved in the bomb dropping project tried to make. I know there were questions about whether or not you would take an atomic bomb and and just test it on an island somewhere and show the world, look, we have this thing. It works, and we're willing to use it. But then other people came back and said, well, if you drop it on an island, maybe they won't know how many you have or – they maybe will doubt whether or not it's real because they won't have seen it go off. They will think that maybe you won't actually use this against citizens. So that morality question really underscores whether or not they wanted to, to drop the bomb. At least with the with the atomic bomb that was dropped in Japan, it weren't quite talking in terms of millions. You were talking in terms of hundreds of thousands that could die in the atomic bomb or dying in terms of a ground war. Like So the question then is not only the number of people that you would save, or forced to die, but whether or not they were Americans or Japanese, so you have another a level of uh, calculations in your moral decision making.
2: That's, I mean, that's one thing I always wondered is why why didn't they just drop the bomb next to you know forty or fifty miles outside of Hiroshima, or just somewhere on Japanese territory where it wouldn't inflict that damage? And to me, I guess if I if I had the power and were given the keys to you know keys to history, I, that's probably the the path I would have gone, but. Yeah, like you said, I mean, the, that maybe doesn't have the desired outcome.
1: Well, that not only that, but whether or not you drop the first one and then don't drop the second one, and whether or not the Japanese leadership, the emperor, had time to even understand that a bomb was dropped and that a bomb of uh, an immeasurable difference than regular firebombing which had been taking place, whether or not that was different. And, oh, sorry, whether or not they actually had the time to basically understand what was happening, because once the city was destroyed... Phone lines were destroyed or um, lines of communication. It took several days to figure out what was going on there. So there is that question, but then you get into the debate about was the second bomb that was dropped in Nagasaki, was that a message for the Japanese, or was that a message for the Soviet Union to say, stay out of Europe?
2: Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing for me is that in this episode, it's kind of a binary choice, right? They have the option to either intervene or not intervene, whereas, as you mentioned, there's many different factors when you're, you know, when you think about... Unleashing this, you know, uh, this horrible thing on the world, um, you you don't really know what the effect's going to be, and uh, it makes the real world a little bit harder um, to to navigate that in. But I think at least this episode kind of gives me uh, almost a hint that maybe Gene Roddenberry would have thought that maybe it's okay if the result is you can progress with a you know more peaceful society. But I don't really know. I think you'd have to ask him that, and and obviously can't do that. So this is some heavy
1: stuff, but forget the nuclear nonsense for for a certain point here. Let's pretend like, yeah, the U.S. entering the war is what stopped Germany from building an atomic bomb, and you know one person, whether you be a social worker um, or a Star Trek writer, can change the world if you want to. Beyond that, was this still a good episode? Was this something um, both Gabe as the Star Trek enthusiast in residence and Joel as someone who I think we've seen some of the Star Trek movies together, but... I don't think you necessarily, um, you know, had, were wearing your Star Trek pajamas uh, growing up. What did you think about this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fantastic episode. Certainly one of my favorites. Um, you know, the, the intro is it's a little bit uh, kind of hokey the, the way they get into the plot, but once they get into the story, it's fantastic. I mean, I see a lot of, I see a lot of, you know, Gene Roddenberry here in this episode in terms of this very optimistic character of Edith and that kind of is reflected in, you know, in Kirk's kind of love interest with her, which seems very genuine. Um, it must have been tough for Gene Roddenberry. He was a, uh, I mentioned he was a pilot during World War II. He he was also involved in a very famous uh, plane crash uh, in the desert, I believe in Egypt. It was on a flight from India. And the the plane crashed, and he personally went into the burning wreckage to rescue many people. So this idea of kind of, you know, rescuing people as being kind of the instinct. I mean, I think you see that in Kirk. So to write something where you would have to actually go out of the way and not save someone must have been a very incredibly difficult thing for him to write. Um, and I think another great thing about this episode too is the um, the friendship between Kirk and Spock that comes through, which I mean, you really get the sense that they're, you know, two peas in a pod. There's there's, there's a lot of jokes. And, and even at one point, you know, Edith can sense that, you know, says something to the effect of, you know, Spock, you know, even when you don't call him captain, you know, you can still hear it in your voice. So there's that bond between them. But I'm curious what Joel, the more uninitiated Star Trek uh, viewer would, would say.
0: Well, I, I can understand why it's considered, you know, up there in terms of the overall canon is one of the, the better episodes. I think we can all point to either stories or, or, or acting stereotypes of, you know, like, Kirk and his manic kind of acting style or or the other things that people like to make light of about Star Trek. This is one of those things where I think most people would agree. It's, you know, a really solid episode. Although I would say it's solid because of the individual actors and, you know, them being able to really show the relationships between the characters, despite, I think some of the shortcomings of the actual storytelling I thought the the mechanics of the story were a little more lacking. I, I think we all talked about how the episode ends rather abruptly. That you know, there's there's literally the the accident, and you see this great reaction from Kirk. You know, like it's those personal relationships where you see a lot of dramatic um, reward, I guess, to the overall story. But but the actual arc of the storyline seems a little uh, incomplete, where. All of a sudden it happens. You see this great emotional tension and then they're able to step outside back to the, the present. And then Shatner or Kirk says, you know, let's get out of here. And then it just credits roll. And, right. And I thought it was interesting because I would have thought you that a great way to continue that tension would be, well, what does Kirk do when they, they want to leave? How, how does he react to that power that's down on the planet? And, you know, again, as someone who, you know, is kind of not a big Star Trek person, just looking at it from a a narrative standpoint, I would have thought it'd be interesting just for a couple more minutes. And I thought this is where the next generation was really good, that they would have the story, they would have some kind of conclusion, but there was always that like two to five minutes of conversation or dialogue with Picard at the end to kind of. Like wrap it up for the audience of like where do we go from here and then how does this impact me going forward? And I thought you sense – and you even noted it, Gabe. Like you feel like he internalized it and, and it went with him. But I don't think the audience really saw a payoff pay narratively about you know what does humanity do when they realize there's this power on this planet to completely change the course of history? What do we do with that, that, that knowledge?
1: So now it's time for everyone's favorite section of the podcast, the nuclear most offensive. What was the thing that bothered us the most about this particular episode of TV we watched? Whether it be a technical nuclear question or just simply a plot hole, what got most under our skin? I don't really have a whole lot on this one. You know, it's it's certainly a simplistic really? idea. Well, I don't. I think it's a simplistic idea to think that if the U.S. was just delayed a few years, then... Germany would have built a bomb. But I understand why the writers in the 60s when they wrote this made sense because a lot of this, uh, like those things I was talking about earlier, the transcripts from the Farm Hills uh, conversations that were recorded by German scientists after the, wo- the war ended, that stuff really wasn't released until 1992. So people must have operated for years under the assumption that the uh, Germans were right around the corner for building a bomb. I mean, that was what the narrative that was – Promoted at the time amongst the people and the scientists that were involved, and then to the public as well. So, so you're
0: talking about the 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 accuracy as far as history and 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 things like that. That you're nitpicking to to use that. that sure. Word.
1: So I don't really um, I'm not incredibly bothered by this. Like this doesn't eliminate um, me my enjoyment of this episode. So I still think that it was it was pretty good. I think it's always a little silly to think that one person like Edith uh, could have stopped. Roosevelt from getting into the war because I think there was a lot of things pulling the United States into war, especially Pearl Harbor. I mean, what argument would she have against that particular fury? People were very angry at the Japanese. So I think that is a little bit of a problem for me. That's not necessarily a nuclear thing. So I think I still enjoy this episode quite a bit, and uh, I can understand why people like it. It's, the pacing at the very end was odd and very awkward, but it's, something, it's a show that came out in the 1960s, so I think they did a really good job for For what they were doing
0: for me i'll just do it very quickly because i talked about it a little bit and then i'm curious to get gabe's take but you know i i don't think it was just the the pacing that i was most critical of at the end but it it was just that huge loose end of we have the equivalent of you know a godlike power to alter all of history Mm -hmm. that can even destroy our very existence of the future that that we like and hold so dear and it seems like they just leave and so, for you know, like I don't know if they would have needed, you know, like two minutes. Just the thing of, man, I'm glad we destroyed
1: that thing. Yeah, and I, would, I was saying the credits. I was saying at the very end, they should send a few photon torpedoes to the surface and be, oh yeah, guard, what is it, guard, guardian, of the, guardian of tomorrow or forever? Uh, you guys are just, we don't like you very much. This is for, this is for, this one's for Edith, and then send a few photon torpedoes to the surface, but. Maybe that was a violation of the prime directive. So I get what you're saying, Joel. It just seemed like that was a perfect time for Jean Luc Picard to say, "We dismantled
0: it and moved on," and then roll credits.
2: Right universe, wrong show. Um, no, you I can come back in time. <laughs> no, I, I think I, I definitely take what you're saying, Joel. I mean. Yeah, it, it's like a song almost that ends on a uh you know, on an off note that it just kind of you don't really know what to do with it. I I, I thought the weakest thing of this episode was the kind of backstory or plot devices that they need to get you to the past. You know, they have this this thing about McCoy accidentally injecting himself and running around like a madman. Apparently the original script had something to do with like a drug dealer loose on the ship. And I think there was some cold over from that. Uh, Gene Roddenberry ultimately didn't want, you know, a story with that tone. Um, But yeah, for me, and then this, you know, this portal. And I think that's kind of the problem. That is never tied up. Um, There's no explanation of what happens with that, mainly because this is just a plot. I view it at least as just a plot device to get them there um maybe they could have done it a little bit more elegantly and if anything that's what I would have said that you know maybe there's a better way to get you into that story. Um, so I the the like way the,
0: like the breakaway uh, warp speed I think that we
2: oh in our next episode yeah exactly well you just add some trek jargon like oh the the quantum phase variance and the you know something like that and people will just buy it but so I for me the the ending on the off note doesn't really bother me because I kind of Put that away, but I could see how a you know a reasonable viewer it would it would kind of bother you that that was not not kind of dealt with.
1: So that's our discussion of Star Trek: City on the Edge of Forever. If people might be more interested in uh, research on Germany's nuclear bomb project and what happened and what didn't happen, there's two books I recommend checking out. One is Jeremy uh, Bernstein's book called Hitler's Uranium Club. The Secret Recordings at Farm Hill. This is something that came out in 2001. You can find it on Amazon or your local bookstores. It's a great depiction of what the scientists were doing and how far they had gotten. Um, And then it pulls together a lot of information that wasn't available until the 1990s. And also I'd recommend Mark Walker's book, German National Socialism and the Quest for Nuclear Power from 1989. So it gives a little bit of a picture of what... Uh, people were thinking before these transcripts were released in their full, um, in their full capacity. So it's a, those books, combined with, you know, just watching this episode, would give you a pretty good picture of anxieties about the German program and what we needed to do about it. Thanks again, Joel and Gabe, for coming along. Gabe, can you stick around for a little bit and be able to cover the, our next topic here? Of
2: course, I wouldn't miss it.
1: Good, because we can't do this without you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Supercritical. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or guests that you want us to have on, or, you know, just tell us what we got wrong, whether it be nuclear or Star Trek. A couple different ways you can do that and contact the show. We can look for us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're also on Twitter at nuclearpodcast, and the old-fashioned way, I guess, email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And, you know you enjoyed the show and the program, I would love if you considered subscribing on iTunes or leaving a review. This really helps us find new listeners and grow the show. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Joel. And Gabe. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one, and I guess live long and prosper too.